This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined by the broadcaster and journalist, uh, James Cooper. You'll know him from being on our screens at Sky for well over a decade. He has worked in print journalism as well as broadcast journalism, and he's up to lots more now as a, as a freelancer doing some lecturing, you were telling me, James. You're doing some live events, and as well as the, the old school reporting that, 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 you, that you know and love as well. But first of all, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. I, I think on a different adventure after after being at Sky. But I think you know what, what's interesting about the kind of new adventure is that you know you stand there on those those transfer deadline days or outside Old Trafford talking about what the latest manager's been speaking to you about, and essentially you're staring at a camera with a cameraman who's obviously bored because you've maybe tried it five or six times and not got it right, and he's looking at his watch and thinking, "I want to go home." I think you know what doing live events or or, or talking to students is about. You suddenly see a reaction. You know very quickly whether you're good or whether you're bad because you've got people in front of you. So it's a it's a nice challenge, it's a nice buzz. And, and I've got to be honest with you, I wanted to be an actor. You know, that was what I essentially wanted to be. Um, and I wasn't good enough and I wasn't lucky enough. So it's, it was kind of the next best thing. And, you know, being on TV, um, talking about sport and talking about football, which is just kind of second nature to the people like yourself. You know, it's just um, it's, it's, it's one step away from acting and performing. So that that's why it became a bug. You know, and that's why every time the red light goes on, you just get a buzz. And in terms of covering a club like Manchester United, um, it really is something that is obsessed on all across the UK, up here in Scotland, of course, in England and, and across the globe. I always think if a player is suspended at, I don't know, maybe even an Arsenal or a Chelsea, there will be some coverage, but eventually it'll dim down. Whereas if a player is suspended at Manchester United for a, a three-match ban or whatever it may be, it's headline news for days. There's debates. Everyone's rolled out from former players to current players. What was that like being involved in that for so long outside Old Trafford and breaking those kind of stories? I think it was it was an adventure. It was it was it was fun. I think that's the thing that you know you want to get across to people. It's not really like a serious job where it's life or death. Although people kind of treat it that way because it is Manchester United because they either passionately love them or they love to hate them. You know, I think there's there's that contrast in your audience. And then you've got a football club where there is nothing normal about it. You know, you, you go from a crisis to a triumph and, and there's nothing in the middle. I think that's the amazing thing about it. You know, it is either panic stations or it's this is the best club in the world. And I think that's that's what was quite fun about it. I mean, it's quite tiring as well because, you know, you didn't have any time to sort of just sort of take your breath. Because, as you say, someone says something, someone does something, it's all over the world. And your job is to either tell people about that first or get the detail, the explanation and the context before anybody else does as well. You know, that's what the kind of job was all about. And I think it is just a singular club. There, there are a few like it, you know, um, Celtic and Rangers in, in Scotland, you know, Liverpool down the road, um, the Spanish clubs, um, you know, and, and other people are catching up as well. But I think from a media point of view, and I don't want to get people upset about which is the biggest club in the world. You know, the facts and figures speak for themselves. People want to talk about Manchester United on a global basis in a way that they don't about any other football club. And in terms of going to press conferences um, and reporting on matches, when you started at, at Sky, for instance, in your role covering United week in, week out, Sir Alex Ferguson, of course, was still the manager. Um, the Champions League success, success of 2008 was still to come. Uh, league successes, his retirement and what came after. But in terms of Sir Alex himself, how did you prepare for going into a press conference with him? I, I think there was a there was a fear in your belly, uh, first and foremost. And I don't think you ever lost that. And I think if you did, it, that's when it caught you out, when you were complacent and think, right, I know how this person operates. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that you could get a question wrong, but it wouldn't be maybe a, a problem as much as getting a word in the question wrong. You didn't know quite what the rules were, uh, what the topics were, um, and, and then what he wanted to do with it. You know, this was a guy that could... Um, silence 
a room full of egos. And, you know, the Manchester Press Pack are fantastic. You know, they're a really, really good bunch of people. But we're talking about people who know what they're doing, who are serious journalists and have kind of serious egos to go with it. Well, he walks in like a headmaster and suddenly all those egos just disappear. You know, and and you, you can't win. You know, you can argue your case. You can do all those things. But it's it's his club. And, you know, people ask me about him more than any other person simply because he is iconic. And I think I say it to a lot of people, I think no one is bigger than Manchester United. And, and that goes for a lot of football clubs. But, you know, we are talking about United. I think there's an argument to say that when he was in his pomp, Sir Alex Ferguson was perhaps bigger than Manchester United. But I think equally, if you'd have asked him, he would have denied that. You know, he would have said that wasn't the case. But I think, you know, he was such in control of that football club. And, and that, that was particularly the problem, of course, when he left, because suddenly all the reins were loosened and um, the whole thing sort of came apart. But he was absolutely compelling. And I think, you know, in terms of Sky and press conferences, you know, proper Hollywood, which was followed by the likes of Jose um, uh, and, you know, Van Hal. Uh, and some of the theatre you get from press conferences from other things. Well, the person who started all that was Sir Alex Ferguson. You know, he was the one who made Friday lunchtimes or Friday mornings a must-watch thing. And in terms of Sir Alex, I mean, there was lots of successes we'll, we'll talk about. But again, when, when you came into that role, he was signing a young Cristiano Ronaldo. He was signing uh, Wayne Rooney, of course, at that time as well. Louis Sahan, guys like that came in as well too. United, though, for a few years, obviously, the Invincibles, then you had um, Chelsea under Mourinho in his first spell, really setting high standards in the league, getting into the mid-90 points. I think they won the league uh, in Mourinho's first season. I think they conceded 16 goals in the full season, which which is ridiculous. What was, what was your impression of Sir Alex during those years? Because he was building a young team to challenge again in the future, whereas Mourinho and Wenger were the Invincibles, were hoovering up the big prizes then and there. I think he would have enjoyed uh, being untouchable, but I think this part of him would would have liked the challenge, you know. So 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 I think he loved having people he could fight against, you know. And I think what was interesting, if you watch some of his press conferences, his tone will change depending on what he thinks of somebody else. So if if Wenger was a threat, then he really didn't want to talk about him too much. If Wenger wasn't a threat, then he talk for days on end about Arsene Wenger and and Jose was the same, you know. They kind of fell in and out of love with each other, but if he was a threat then Sir Alex, again, wasn't going to give him the time of day. So I think that was the really interesting thing. It was all about control, all about setting messages and traps for people. You know, famously, of course, you know, Kevin Keegan falling for it. You know, he was trying to do that on a constant basis. And we were, in many ways, I think, you know, the vessel to do that. And I think what was funny was the dynamic in him trying to get out his message and us trying to get out our message and both of us trying to do our jobs together. You know, and I think one thing he did do very well, if you watch a lot of the press conferences back, is he stole the... The, the thunder at the start, if you like. He set the tempo. Before anyone asked a question, a lot of the times he made his pronouncement, set the tone, and then it was about your job to kind of dig through that, maybe even go around that, you know, and, and see what he did. But, you know, this is a person, and I, I talked to a, a lot of friends who, who are in coaching, um, you know, and have to, have to do interviews or do press conferences. And, you know, one of the basic tips of the, of the matter is just know what you want to say take 30 seconds before you go into a room or go to an interview and, and know what you because this is what this man did he was able to do that and uh, there were fleeting moments where you saw emotion and that would override some of the preparation that he may have made but generally 90 percent of the time or 95 percent of the time even this was a guy that knew the message he wanted to get out there and nothing was going to stop him getting that message out and i think what was interesting in terms of my relationship and the best thing i ever did uh, i had a season at mutv in 1999 that was the treble season. That was the season when everything went well. My job was to speak to the players and Sir Alex Ferguson, and that kind of gave me the basis for relationships. You never take anything for granted at Manchester United. You know, you have to be constant and consistent with everybody. But that was the basis for kind of the relationship and, and certainly the, I suppose, trust between me and them and me and the football club. And you mentioned that 99 season when you're at MUTV. The impossible question, I suppose, I should ask you from a footballing perspective is, how would you compare the 99 uh, team with that team of 2008? Because they really should have won a treble as well. Obviously, the FA Cup in Portsmouth was what it wasn't to be, but they were a great team as well. Yeah, they were. I, I mean, I've got to say, I think simply because they did the treble in 1999, I think the heart goes out to them. And I think it was kind of a an epic thing. You know, the fact that they did it made it 
seeing that it was doable for other people. So we talked about Liverpool last season, maybe doing the quadruple, or maybe talk about City doing the treble. It suddenly becomes something that, that is tangible, simply because what they did in 1999. So, you know, 2008, yes, some fantastic players, you know, the world's best player in Cristiano Ronaldo and fulfilling one of the, the great dreams that Sir Alex had to have one of the people playing for him, getting the Ballon d'Or, getting the best player in the world. You know, th those are remarkable things. But I think if you look at the ingredients, of, uh, of the treble, when you think about how they went about it, you know, when, when you think about, um, I don't know, the, the semi-final against Arsenal, you know, penalty misses and Ryan Giggs' goal, or you think about winning the cup final against Newcastle, this, you know, huge momentum shifting from January through to May, and then Barcelona and, and everything about it, you know, Samat's birthday, um, and, and just the circumstances of not being really very good on the night, um, but all those iconic things, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, 2008, people remember the rain, I think, in Moscow, and they remember the missed penalties and all those sort of things. But there are a few kind of iconic moments, whereas, you know, you, 1999, you remember Sami Kafur drumming on the pitch or Mateus looking downtrodden and all those things, Sir Alex Ferguson skipping the, the cartwheel from Peter Schmeichel. I'm not a Manchester United fan, but I think that 1999 thing was just simply iconic, and, and being there was a real privilege. and. Just go back to things like Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Caballé singing Barcelona before the game. You know, it was totally special. And, you know, we do all these interviews for MUTV after the game. And then Manchester United fans had drunk the town dry, drunk the city of Barcelona dry. So I didn't, I think I got a warm beer in my hotel room to reflect on what was probably the greatest night ever. And then one of the curses is it's not my team. So as much as I enjoyed it and loved it, it wasn't the same as Ipswich Town winning a League One game. In terms of um, watching uh, games of that magnitude and, and the incredible moments that you've worked on over the years, what is the difference between broadcast journalism where you're reporting in the game or you're outside Old Trafford reporting on a big event compared to, say, writing a match report? What? How, how do you handle those disciplines? Because they are different. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to say, I, I haven't done a great deal of, of, of kind of the print work, but, but, I, but I know what you mean and I have done some of it, you know, and I think it's, it's a very different thing and I think it has adapted and changed um, over the years, you know, you had the phone calls, you had people selling phones or renting phones in press boxes, you know, to get your copy through to the people on the desk, you know, and, and that becomes an art in itself. You know, I watch some of my friends, my colleagues who are written journalists, and they have a great knack of watching half the game and typing for the other half of the game. So it's a very, very different discipline. And most of the time they're catching it on on screens or on tablets and getting the replays of something because they're working on the reactions of everybody else, you know. So I think that's that's a major difference. You, even though you're there, you're soaking up all the atmosphere. You, you're you're so focused on on what you're writing. And I think what's really interesting is they work kind of as a team. You know, everyone's sort of shouting stuff left, right, and centre. Is that this or that that? Who did this? Simply because they're not they're not watching in the way that you would as a broadcaster. I think with a broadcaster, you know, for me it was just simply more exciting. You know, you you, you had that rush of adrenaline. You were telling the people the news. Um, and, and you're talking about the big stories. So I think, you know, they're, they're two similar things, but, but but equally very different. I think you have to be kind of organised and prepared um, and, and you can scrap everything very, very quickly as a writer. And, and you know, you, you, for example, you know, a lot of match reports have been written in 1999 of Manchester United simply not being good enough and Sir Alex Ferguson falling at the, um, the final hurdle and having to make it a double. You know, suddenly those two goals go in and you've got to tear up your copy you got to phone somebody from a Barcelona press room and, and change it all around. So I, I admire it when that happens because it's not the same on TV. On TV, if you've got to give a full-time report, well, you can just soak it up and, and say what, exactly what happened. So they're, they're very, very different skills, but those guys are really talented. When it all goes wrong or all changes, that's when it's exciting to be in a press box and watch people, you know, because they are on their keyboards. They're going absolutely nuts, looking for each other for help. And also not only reporting what's going on, but but, but putting in, in, in really, really clever terms, you know, some seriously really good writers on the Manchester patch. And there are other patches as well. When you see them under pressure and what they've kind of put together, it's incredible. Whereas, you know, TV, it's almost like Roy Walker. It's say what you see. You, you, we talked about the sort of pre-match press conference at Carrington. If you are interviewing Sir Alex or any manager or player after the game, what what is that like? Are you taking notes during the game um, as to what you might ask them after it, or is it instinctive? It's it's a bit of both. Um, some you know one of the things I you know you talk to with with students or, or young journalists is, is the ability to listen. 
you know, and, uh, and, and, and be prepared to kind of change your plan depending on what someone says to you. So there's an element of that in post-match. But I mean, I, it's a bit of a curse, but I would always write big notes watching a football match. You know, no, no matter what I did, if, if I had a if I had reports afterwards or if I had interviews afterwards, I'd always have my way of taking notes because it was my way of remembering what went on. If I write something down, then I'm lucky that most of the time I can remember what, what happened. And I think, you know, with the best win in the world, you, you want to be organised. And I think that's what Sir Alex Ferguson taught me. So if you're doing a post-match interview in the tunnel at um, Old Trafford and it's normally cold and there's a lot going on and he's tapping his watch as, as he's speaking to you, that's one thing he did, which was really unnerving. You know, he's telling you to get on with it because time is running out and you can't see that because it's off camera. So he's tapping his watch, tapping his watch. And you know you're going to get four or five questions, but you're probably not going to get a sixth question. Uh, and it's, so it's, it's a bit of a game. But to answer your, your, your question more succinctly, I would have a plan and be prepared to kind of abandon that plan depending on, on which way it went. But, it, but you know, th there are then those kind of more difficult things where you might do an interview which is being recorded. So there's less pressure there. Or you might have someone in your ear saying, right, we're coming to you now, we're coming to you now, go. And then as Sir Alex is asking, answering a question saying, right, you need to ask this, or he said that, or what, go this way. And that becomes a really more difficult and more challenging thing, especially when it's usually with Sky at the end of a very long day where you might have started quite early on a big game, doing lives outside the stadium and finding yourself tired, uh, exhilarated by the game, but having a, a, a very angry or tetchy Sir Alex Ferguson to try and get the best out of rather than, uh, the badge of him walking out of an interview or swearing at you. <laughs> and in terms of, <clears throat> pardon me, in terms of um, his reign as such, since you worked at MUTV and then worked at Sky, he was the constant. He was always the manager of Manchester United. You're not a United fan, as you said. You, you're an Ipswich Town follower and and, and 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 such a historic club as well in their own right. But when Sir Alex says that he's going to step down, what was your initial reaction as a reporter, because my reaction from the outside looking in as a fan was, it just, he seemed like he would last forever. Now, nothing ever does, but Sir Alex just, he, he emanated a sense of, I'm never going to leave. I'll, I, I'm always going to be here. So I remember it taking time to sink in, which, which sounds strange. I, I think the first reaction was help, in the sense that it's it's what you knew, uh, but not, not only what you knew, that you had the store of this amazing, iconic manager being a way of elevating what you were doing. Let, let's, be, let's be honest about this. Being a Manchester United correspondent, reporter, call it what you like, you were higher profile simply because you were working with Sir Alex Ferguson all the time. You know, he's the person I'm asked most about. And I'm sure that that goes to my colleagues in the, in the press who've dealt with him as well. So, you know, you, you're kind of thinking, well, y yes, think good, all good things have to come to an end. But then kind of what's next? And, and, and I think that was the problem with the football club as well. You know, I, I think they tried to go in various directions and ended up with what next being being David Moyes, which wasn't really very fair on David Moyes. But, you know, it was such a, a, a key change in the sense that you had somebody, a complete control freak who knew everything and everyone at the football club to somebody who was suddenly parachuted into that and expected to live Manchester United. And I think, you know, with the best one in the world, not many people could do that. I, I, I think those people that could are very rare. I think Jose Mourinho would have happily jumped in there and then and be fine with it. And, and likewise, Pep and probably uh, Jurgen Klopp, but very few others. You know, Jose thinks he is bigger than every football club he's at. That's his mind. So he hasn't got a problem with that. He, he came to Manchester and for me, didn't understand how Manchester worked, how Manchester United worked. And that's why I, I think it didn't work for him. But he wouldn't have had a problem falling in the shoes of Sir Alex Ferguson. And there's an argument that if United had got him, that bit earlier than they did, they would have seen a, a more successful Jose Mourinho and a team that was more progressive than the one that they saw, you know, when he finally turned up at Old Trafford. But I think, you know, it, it was a sense of help with Sir Alex Ferguson going simply because it was fun. It was scary fun at times. But, you know, he demanded the best from everybody, he demanded his best from the players, he demanded his best from the people asking him, even asking his questions in an interview. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're not very important when the scheme of things but he let very, very clearly let you know if you'd stepped out of line, if you didn't reach his standards or would upset him. You know, and I think that's what made him different, that, that he probably cared enough. In terms of the change from Sir Alex Ferguson to David Moyes, it was a monumental change, as you've said, and with hindsight parachuting David Moyes in, who had been at Everton for 12 years. I mean, no disrespect to Everton, but that was never going to prepare someone for the juggernaut of modern-day Manchester United in 2013. 
how did things change for you as a reporter during that sen- that time? Because you mentioned the fact that Sir Alex Ferguson would dictate the tempo of a press conference. He had that aura. David Moyes, although he was respected, I don't imagine had that aura from day one the way Sir Alex did. No, he didn't. And I, and I think, you know, um, I'd love to have the conversation with him where we just sat there and, and thinking, how could it have been better? Because I don't think anyone went into the room on his first press conference and said, we want this guy to fail. There was never that feeling. You know, I think, you know, most journalists would agree that, yeah, it's, it's a great story when things don't work. But generally when things are working, when teams are winning and playing well and, and doing wonderful things, life's good for everybody. People will talk. People are happy. The whole job is a lot more fun. You know, and, and I think most people have aged, you know, immeasurably over the past few years since 2013, simply because it's just been this relentless underachievement, you know, which isn't fun. You know, the script has been the same for, you know, almost 10 years now, which is which is incredible. Um, so for David Moyes, I, I don't think and this is probably controversial. I think the one person that changed him was Wayne Rooney at Everton. I think that changed his whole dynamic. And, I, and I've met him at Preston. I've met him at Everton prior to Rooney coming. Yeah, I think having the 16-year-old man-child, you know, if you like, a, an early day at Erling Haaland, but that's not fair either of those to compare them. So that's a, probably a rubbish thing to say. But I think, you know, he was suddenly this huge, huge figure that was too big for Everton. And, and, and I think there was problems in, in, in dealing with that. And I, and I think that that changed the way that David Moyes looked at the media and probably quite understandably, because suddenly you've got this thing which has this relentless momentum, this thing that everyone wants to write about and talk about. And, and, and I think... That made him suspicious. And I think once he got into a, an environment where suddenly he wasn't in control like he was at Everton, that people were had achieved things and won things and, and knew how things were should be done uh, by virtue of what Sir Alex Ferguson taught them, then, you know, he was just destined to fail. And what didn't help, of course, either is that he wasn't able to net the sort of players that, that he wanted. I mean, it must absolutely drive him mad now that he looks at Ten Hag and they spend 200 million getting these players from wherever he wanted. And he was left with Marouane Fellaini, who, who, who did a great job for loads of managers, but, you know, isn't a Manchester United player. and certainly not one that you could build a new era upon. In terms of the, the transfer dealings post Sir Alex, I mean, I always think when, when Sir Alex Ferguson was, was there, there was a sense of structure in the sense that United would get the three players or four players they wanted relatively early most of the time. In January, there would be very rarely any business. You think of Vidic and Evra, maybe as notable exceptions, Henrik Larsson coming in on loan. Whereas I always remember yourself and that deadline day under Louis van Gaal and Falcao's coming in and it just seemed to be absolute bedlam. And, and the Moy saga, of course, with Fellaini was the same. What was that like as a reporter? Because it was very un-Manchester United-like. It, it was, it was, but it kind of took its own, own sort of own feeling and own story. You know, you mentioned Falcao and that was a, a really, really funny day in the sense that, you know, we were waiting and waiting and waiting. And I, I, I had a contact at the Manchester airport who I was speaking to, trying to work out when this private jet was coming, I think from, from Monaco, I think it was, all, all the way to Manchester, and then Falcao would be here. And I remember getting the, the phone call, and there were two or three journalists at, at the barrier at Carrington. And I got the phone call saying, right, he's on his way, he'll be here and here and here, and I'm writing it down, I'm writing it down, I'm speaking, and I do it. And I put the phone down and say, thank you for the contact. It's you know, priceless information because I'm telling her to tell everybody on Sky when he's coming and it's going to be done. Don't worry about anything like that. And one of my uh, colleagues or, or rivals had listened to the phone call and said, can I report that on, on my radio station? And I said, well, that's not really the way it works. It's my information. By all means, do what you want with it afterwards. Um, but that just showed you that, that it's such a battle. You know, transfer deadline days are fun and all those sort of things. But when it comes down to it, they want to know what the big clubs are doing. And, and essentially you know, you, what Manchester United are doing. And I think what changed the transfer window in terms of the way that Sky did it uh, and probably the way that it was kind of perceived by everybody was 2008. You know, you had the, the shake coming in at Manchester City, you had Rubinho arriving, you had people with tea towels on their heads, you know, and you had Berbatov arriving at Manchester Airport with us not knowing whether he was going to Manchester City or going to Manchester United. And Sir Alex got him in a car, took him to Manchester United. And then the iconic shot of him walking across the Old Trafford shadows into a room to sign for Manchester United, you know, and, and one of my great regrets that night um, was reporting on that and we got the shot and I knew where he was going. So that was great. I was very pleased that we delivered the shot that I think became iconic. Um, 
but I had a phone call when I was doing a live and the phone call, I looked down at my phone as you do because you, you think it could be a text or some information and it was the main Manchester United number. So I thought it was somebody just taking the mick out of me, one of my friends at United saying, here you go again, you're looking cold, you're looking drenched, we're not going to give you any food. I just forgot it. And then driving home that night, I just checked my messages and it was Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill. They'd rung me to say, you're missing out on the story. If you'd answered your phone, you'd have got us, we could have talked to you on air. Uh, but you've missed out. And I could hear Sir Alex Ferguson chuckling away in the background, David Gill thinking it was hilarious. And I think that's probably possibly the, the first time I've told, told that tale. But it was one of those great things of if I'd answered the phone, it wouldn't have been them. And I'd look stupid on Sky. But it was one of those things where you think, well, it's great that they rang and it's great they were taking the mick out of me. But one of those great regrets that I didn't take it because we could have had a proper exclusive about what they'd done. And I think they were eager to talk simply because obviously the fanfare was from the blue side of Manchester and they were just trying to change the narrative. So it was nice to get the call, but it was rubbish to miss it. In terms of, um, that's a great story. And in terms of the rise of City, you, you mentioned there that David Gill and Sir Alex Ferguson wanting to talk in that moment, which is understandable. What was the rise of City like to cover from your perspective? You're on the Manchester United patch first and foremost. United were, let's be honest, always the big story, even when they weren't successful, probably still were the bigger story. But City then started to attract players like Yaya Toure, Sergio Aguero, and now into the sort of current era, Kevin De Bruyne and Erling Haaland. I mean, that, that shift must have been massive for you as a reporter. Yeah, it was. I, I think one of the fundamental things that always made me laugh over the years was that Reds thought I was a blue and Blues thought I was a red. You know, and uh, and that was kind of a juggling act. And then when you say you're an Ipswich Town fan, no one really cares because people are indifferent to that. You were very kind and said that we were a club with a great legacy and history and all those things are true. But in the scheme of things, it's sort of so what until we find our way back to the Premier League. But that's not the question that you ask and I should be answering. I, I think what was apparent very, very early on is that the Manchester United didn't have a plan. You know, David Gill and Sir Alex Ferguson had had plans after plans after plans. They had a strategy. They realised what was going on. They plotted everything, you know, down to the, the smallest of details. And I think what we've seen over the past few years is re repeated mistakes, repeated mistakes, and, and no real plan or strategy. That the, the, There seems to be the beginnings of one now. Um, but, you know, we can go into myriads of debate about how they're building and what they're doing. And that's, again, not what you're asking about. You're asking about Manchester City. But what they had from the word go was a total plan. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. They knew about the City Football Group before the City Football Group was given that name, you know, for the rest of the world to look at. They, they knew they wanted this whole evolution of a, a, a clubs all over the world that they could, you know, move players around on or, or, or sell players and trade. And, you know, very much everything was planned and plotted. And I think what was interesting kind of behind the scenes at Manchester City is that when the money first came in, you had a lot of people who were shouting the odds and uh, were very kind of, uh, look at me, look at me, look at me. And those people were, were weeded out very, very carefully and very, very quickly. You know, what they've got now is a much more streamlined thing. It's a lot of people work for Manchester City, but they have plans coming out of their ears. There's an argument, perhaps they've got too much of a strategy, but the contrast between the two clubs is alarming. You know, I think they know where they're going in the next 10 years. You know, Manchester United, as I say, I think things have improved, but there was an argument to say, Manchester United over the last few years didn't know where they were going in the next 10 minutes, let alone the next 10 years. You know, and I think that that's what became apparent, you know, and, and it had always been the case that Manchester United would break transfer records. You know, remember Rio Ferdinand or you remember, of course, Wayne Rooney. It wasn't a transfer record, but it was for a teenager. Um, you know, people came to Manchester United because they would win things and they would be paid a lot of money and they would play for Sir Alex Ferguson. So suddenly you take Sir Alex Ferguson out of that, you suddenly take winning things out of that. And all really Manchester United have been able to offer over the years is, is money and the hope that you might be part of something that turns the Queen Mary around. And suddenly what they had in a sustained way was all these resources. But not only that, you know, you've you got a chance of winning something, whether it's with Pellegrini or Mancini. And then suddenly Pep Guardiola, the, the greatest coach, I think, that has ever coached the game. And I, and I use the game word coach really, really advisedly because, I, you know, I think Sir Alex Ferguson for me was the greatest manager, certainly in my lifetime. I think there are arguments about other managers, and, and you know, uh, closer to home where you are, uh, you know, the likes of Jock Steen or, or Bill Shankly or Bob Paisley, all of those have, have a shout. But in terms of my lifetime of being a journalist, the greatest manager, I think Pep Guardiola is the greatest coach. 
you know, and 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 yeah, yeah, you, you know, you, what you've got then is the greatest coach. You're going to win things, and you're going to earn as much, if not more, than you would earn uh, at Manchester United. And so the dynamic has completely changed. And what you had back in say 1999 or in 2008, what you mentioned, Manchester City fans would define themselves by Manchester United. It always irritated me coming from a place like Ipswich, which is very small. You know, you're a Manchester City. You know, you've won the league championships. You won the Cup Winners' Cup. You won the FA Cup a few times. All those sort of things. Be defined by yourselves. And they were never done, uh, you know, the no they were the noisy neighbours. Now that's changed completely. United will never define themselves by City, but it, it has really, really changed in, in terms of the dynamic in people's minds. And I think City now kind of compare themselves to, well, well to Liverpool, of course, um, more than they do perhaps to, to, to Manchester United, which is the real change of things. The biggest game of the season is Liverpool against Manchester City. Back then, it would have been Liverpool-Manchester United. And I think anyone who disagrees and said that isn't the case, yeah, historically, they're the two biggest clubs in the country. But in terms of right now, the game that everyone wants to see is Liverpool against Manchester City. And again, that's symptomatic of the change that you were talking about. Absolutely. And you summed it up as well with the culmination, I suppose, of the City Football Group and the uh, Abu Dhabi ownership. When Pep, when Pep Guardiola arrives, the greatest coach in the world arrives at that moment. The main players behind the scenes in Soriano and Begeristein are there. Um, it's set up for him to succeed straight away. Of course, in the first season, there's a lot of building to be done. Um, he gets rid, I think, of the four fullbacks, brings in a new cohort of fullbacks and then gradually builds from there. He's been an incredible coach. I, I agree with you. I think he is the greatest coach in the world. He's definitely had an impact on football in, in the UK. A lot of teams even lower down the levels trying to play it from the back and play much more expansive football, which is great to see. But the thing I want to ask you about when it comes to Guardiola is, do you think Manchester United went from Mourinho solely to be reactive and react to that? I think you've got it spot on. Um, funny enough, I'm just sat in my, my son's room here and he's got a cap here. He's at St. Andrews at university, but he's got a cap here. Um, Batman v Superman. And, and just so people don't think I'm lying, it's a Batman v Superman cap. And, and, and that's what I'd liken it to, Batman v Superman. You know, Superman arrived at, at the Etihad in, in the shape of Pep Guardiola. You've got to find the antidote. So I think you, you bring in Batman in Jose Mourinho. The, the only problem was it wasn't the same Jose Mourinho that, as I say, they, they should have got maybe in 2013, which was... You know, I, I had a chat with Jose just before he left Manchester United. And, and I remember going to see him in Porto uh, when Porto not Manchester United out in the quarterfinals of the Champions League when Paul Scholes was a judge to be offside. And yeah, Cristina scored for them. Yeah, correct. And, and, and uh, Mourinho slid down it on his knees. Uh, and I remember interviewing him afterwards and he, he, there was nothing at home. You know, the eyes were on, the lights were, were on, but there was no one at home. It was just it was just a different moment. It just took anyway. We went to see it at Porto for the first leg, and they had this big sort of auditorium where they had the press conference and he was speaking in various different languages and we arrived late. And I asked him on behalf of Sky, could he just do a couple of questions in English? And he was magnanimous and he was just amazing. He was this force of nature. Uh, and he, he was very surprised that I remembered it when I recalled it, you know, uh, a couple of years ago. But but that's really what he was. You know, and Manchester United needed that Mourinho rather than the one they got, the one that lived in the hotel in Manchester that, that was a really isolated and solitary figure around the training ground. So it wasn't really Batman against Superman at all. But it was the only thing United could do. They, they needed some sort of kryptonite to stop Pep Guardiola. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is nothing can stop Pep Guardiola. You know, the, the guy has the resources. And I know he was criticised. You mentioned the fullbacks then. He spent an awful lot of money on fullbacks. But that's because people know that Manchester City have a lot of money. They're always going to pay over the odds and they always want the best players. You know, and, and I think what people readily forget, um, especially when they throw the things at the, the stadium not being full and all that, is we're seeing a team playing astonishing football. And not only that, over the last four or five years, it's just consistent, amazing football. You know, and I, I was lucky enough to, to host a, an evening with him uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I was trying to think about ways of kind of just sort of settling him down and 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 that sort of thing and and I just re read um, Andy Morrison's book. Andy Morrison was the captain of Manchester City, uh, obviously in '99, where where when Manchester United were winning the treble, they were coming up and beating Gillingham on penalties, and so coming back into the big time. And I, I really recommend his book to anyone watching this and to you, Callum. It's one of the most astonishing books uh, written by a footballer, and I couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. And um, 
I had a two pound coin. I found on Amazon that it was two pounds. And I said at the start of the night to Pep Guardiola, I have a two pound coin here. I said, I want you to spend it on a book by Andy Morrison. And that will tell you everything that you're part of. That will tell you the DNA of this football club and make you understand why people are the way they are, why some of the posters are up and the hoardings are up, why we're not here or the, the invisible man. And I never know, knew whether he did that or not, but I, but I really hope that he did simply because, you know, they are an incredible club. And I think what's happening now is they are actually kind of blossoming into their own identity. They're, they're not defined by Manchester United. And thank goodness that isn't the case because I think no club wants to be like that. I don't think Everton are defined by Liverpool. Sometimes they are. Liverpool certainly aren't defined by Everton. But I think each club needs an own, own identity. And really, you know, Manchester City can go anywhere. And I, I think what keeps Pep Guardiola probably on the blue side of Manchester is that he probably enjoys more power and influence uh, in that job than in any other job in the world. I think that that's probably what will keep him there rather than him thinking I want to go somewhere else or certainly be more tempting to stay. He's not going to be there forever. But, you know, we're talking about a, a coach that has serious power in the way that Sir Alex Ferguson did at Manchester United. No, absolutely. And in terms of um, City as, as, as well, obviously the success that they have is something that I suppose now is a stick that's used to beat United with. There was obviously the famous banner um, before City won the FA Cup and then go and won the title under Manchuri with a ticking clock. It, it seems to be that's the way it is at United at the moment. But the question I want to actually ask you about Mourinho, you referenced there the fact that he stayed in the hotel. Was he ever irked when that was brought up to him? Because it's something that certainly was a topic of conversation for fans, pundits and, and journalists alike. Yeah, he didn't like it at all. I think he he wanted to do it on his own terms. And as I said, I think, you know, he walks into a football club and he's bigger than that club. I don't think it matters if it's Manchester United, Manchester City or any other clubs, Inter Milan, Real Madrid, Roma at the moment. I think it's it's the Jose Mourinho show. The only problem is that the show that we got wasn't the show that we really wanted. We, we saw flashes of it. You know, you, you remember about them winning the UEFA Cup or, sorry, the Europa League um, in, in Stockholm you know, um, after the Manchester bomb, there were kind of little iconic moments like that where you thought maybe it is going to come together and maybe does really understand what's going on. Um, but it was just a shame seeing someone who was a kind of shadow of themselves. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think, you know, the danger is we, we talk about Mourinho, we talk about Sir Alex Ferguson, again, because they are iconic. You know, I, I felt a little bit sorry for, for Van Gaal. I, I, I liked him a lot. I thought he was a really, really wonderful, warm human being. And again, you know, there's an argument there that Manchester United didn't get him in, in enough time. You know, again, it wasn't the Van Hal that, that, that people would have seen a, a decade before, where you'd seen someone angry, someone driven. You know, he was just a, a really decent person. And I think, you know, what kind of explains that better than anybody else is how sad people were when he left. How many people went to his party in, in, in Manchester from the staff at Manchester United to say goodbye to him. This was a really, really uh, decent bloke. And I mentioned the Europa League final. Uh, against Ajax and I met him outside um, you know and, and said to him look you know we re really do miss you because his press conference were theatre in a different way you know enjoy your mince pie and Merry Christmas and all this sort of stuff you know um, and I, I said it just isn't the same he said no it's not and, I, and, I, and, and he missed it too and I, and I think probably his regret was that Manchester United didn't see uh, Van Gaal in the way that he would have liked them to have seen it you know and, and, and just a shame that we didn't get to see any really good football on a sustained basis under Mourinho or under Van Gaal, you know, and yet, you know, the cast list was, was huge. You know, you had, you know, the likes of Di Maria, you had the world transfer record broken for Paul Pogba. It wasn't as though the money wasn't, wasn't spent or isn't there. Um, it was just spent really badly, you know, and I often say to people, you know, you start at a point here, I'm looking where the camera is now, and you want to go over here, but you make a bad mistake and you carry on making a bad mistake and you carry on making you end up so far over here that over here is just irrelevant. And that's what happened with Manchester United, I think. And that's, you know, that makes me sad because what I'd really like is, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like my, my father, um, bless him, talking about Ipswich and Norwich and wanting Ipswich and Norwich in the Premier League being first and second. I, I'm not like that. Uh, Norwich can happily be bottom of the Premier League. I'd like to have the game every season, but, but I don't want them first and second. But I am that way. I would like to see Manchester United and Manchester City top of the tree. And I, I don't really mind which, but I'd like them to be the two prominent clubs in, in Manchester, in Man, not in Manchester, but in the Premier League in this country. I have to ask you, of course, about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer in the sense that you interviewed him and 
you were around him as a player. Obviously, he was involved heavily in the 99 season when you were at MUTV. Obviously, you've worked at Sky when he was a player. What was your reaction when he returned to the club? It was great on the interim spell. I must say, I think he, he did do a relatively good job over the piece when you look at it with the benefit of hindsight. The last season, I think, let's be honest, was a bit of a disaster when Ronaldo returns and the focus maybe shifted away from what Ollie was trying to build with the younger players coming through and speed and attack. Um, what, what was your opinion of him as a player and then as the manager? As a player, um, dedicated, um, fiercely intelligent. Uh, I mean, he really, really get it in terms of uh, what it meant to play for Manchester United, but also it was a, ple- a pleasure and a privilege to kind of interview him as a youngster because he knew his own mind in a, in a way that many of those other people didn't. And, and that's no great disrespect. He just seemed kind of more switched on and more educated. I think what you saw other people of that kind of class, he was he obviously wasn't in the class of 92, but the class of 92 were around him, but they were still kind of growing up when he was there. You know, the likes of David Beckham and, and the Nevilles and Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs. Ryan Giggs was a little bit different in the sense that he'd been on the first team scene for a bit longer and had matured a little bit. But, but you know, we're talking about people who, who didn't really have a proper voice in, in, in the way that he did, partly because you also had really seasoned players around them the likes of, of Roy Keane or Yap Stam or Peter Schmeichel. So they didn't need to kind of grow up in that way. And, and they could, from a media perspective, they had time to develop. But but Ollie was, was spot on from the word go, you know, and, and, and it was wonderful in a way that he scored the goal that everyone talks about. And I remember when he came to the club, before we knew it would be him, being told that I would like who's coming in, that we'd find it him fun to work with um, and, and it would be, a change in how things were done and all of those things were true and again you look at that that pre-season I think we went to to Perth and I think to Thailand and China and he got them fitter than they'd ever been he realized that that was the problem you know he was going to have them outrun and outwork other teams and for a season they did that and then I think it just gave them too much freedom you know I, I think if he looks back he'd probably regret the fact that he did that, and yet, you know, finishing second in the Premier League isn't, you know, isn't a disgrace to anyone. You know, you talk about Sir Alex Ferguson winning the title in 2013, but that team was a huge achievement. Well, Ollie finishing second, I know a long way behind Manchester City, was still finishing second. You know, you, Jose Mourinho would tell you about finishing second as Manchester United being the biggest achievement of his career. So I think, you know, I think history will be a little bit unkind on Ollie simply because of the way it kind of unravelled. But for a time, you know, it, it did appear as though they were building something. And as I say, I think players are difficult in, in the sense that the modern player gets used to something and rebels against it. So if you're hard on them, they'll take that for a time and then they won't like it. If you're soft on them, I think they'll, they'll then find any ways out of it. And I think, you know, Ollie would probably look back on that. And, and I say this with the greatest respect of thinking that he should have been a little bit more, more Sir Alex with them than, than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. You know, it, it kind of, it wasn't what it said on the tin, them all arriving in their in their jackets and ties and shirts. Well, you need behaviour behind that that kind of reflects that. So, you know, I, I was I was ever so upset and sad when he left. But, you know, inevitably it, it's going to happen if you don't get results. And I think, you know, what, what everybody craves in, on, in the red side of Manchester is some sort of, I guess, sustained something. You know, whether that be Eric Ten Hag, and carrying on with him for five or six years, or, or just knowing that there is going to be something that stays in place for a long time that you can build something upon. Something that must have been alien to yourself um, was Ralph Ranyit coming in as an interim coach. I mean, think, again, thinking back to Sir Alex, when you, you start in that role, the constant presence, the, the man who you know will be there through thick and thin, to United going from that level of strength and the dugout to someone who everyone media players alike know is only a, a sitting duck almost for, for a matter of months. Yeah, I, I've got to say, I was almost proved wrong a little bit on that in the sense that I thought Manchester United had kind of a master plan up their sleeve that he was going to do that that role and then transform them behind the scenes and become the kind of sporting director, which I th- think they still don't have at the moment. You know, and, and I was a little bit surprised that didn't happen. I think the problem with the structure at United is, you know, we've heard the talk of all these kind of sporting directors being talked to. I think the reason why no one's kind of tipped up and said, I want to do that job is it simply isn't the job that's being advertised. You know, you look at a sporting director and, you know, you have them in, in Scotland as much as you have them in England, you know, they tend to be the glue in an organization. 
you know, I've, I've worked with um, some people in Manchester who run sporting directors courses, and that's what they're seeing. That's the European model is that the sporting director stays, you know, as, as, as the one ever present and everything changes around it. So the philosophy of the club goes through the sporting director. At the moment, Manchester United don't have a situation where that where someone has or can be given that sort of power. And I think that will be interesting. And I think, you know, they say they've got a sporting director, but it isn't in the kind of traditional sense. So I, I think I, I was surprised with the Rangnick thing because, um, I, I, you know, he certainly wasn't going to be the answer when it became a manager. But I think, you know, equally kind of showing him out the door very, very quickly when he had kind of two years, we thought on that deal was a bit a, a bit of a surprise. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation because at the moment you'd sort of say, certainly from the United fans that I know, that they are happier than they've been for a long time right now because they're seeing a team that's uh, young, that's hungry, that's mobile, that's aggressive. And yet, you know, within that, you've also got some pretty old legs as well, like Sir Varane, Casemiro and Ronaldo. In terms of um, structures, just a few quick ones before I let you go. Um, do you see any parallels at all with Newcastle United um, and Manchester City in terms of how they're planning to go forward? Um, having obviously covered City and been around that quite closely when Sheikh Mansour comes in. Yeah, I, th I think there are similarities. I, th I think, you know, what's interesting about it is I think Newcastle have learned a little bit from what Manchester City have done. You know, there's there's no doubting there's been kind of not shared ideas, but but I think, you know, there's a, there's a respect for what Manchester City have done. But, you know, <coughs> excuse me, I talked about Rubinho coming on in 2008. We didn't see Rubinho or his light coming in in this transfer window, the last one we've had at Newcastle. I think there's a, a more of a kind of slowly, slowly solid sort of way of going about things, you know, where it isn't about the big Galacticos. I think they may come afterwards, but right now it's about kind of taking that next step to be maybe a contender in the top four. And I think, you know, that that's more reflective of a, 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 of a not wasting money, not doing all those things. And I think, you know, whatever the reasons for them investing in Newcastle as, as Manchester City's owners invested in them, I think, you know, the one thing that people got annoyed with was the money that was being thrown around left, right and centre. And I think, you know, the owners at Newcastle probably looked at that and thought there are different ways of going about this. We don't have to have a, a Mancini following Mark Hughes. You know, um, why not have an English manager, Eddie Howe, and, and actually do this from a footballing way rather than a, a transfer driven way, which I think is really interesting. You know, they did spend some money, but I think everyone was surprised that it was kind of, whoa, rather than, whoa. You know, and that might still come, but you've got to say that at the, right now, you know, they're playing really attractive football. You know, the, the, he's making players better. And I think that's the one thing that I'd, I'd say was similar to him and Pep, the ability to make players better. And that's what Manchester United have lacked up to now, you know, certainly consistently. You know, uh, David Moyes didn't make players better. Jose certainly didn't make players better. Van Gaal didn't really make players better. We saw little bits and pieces and he gave Rashford his chance, clearly most famously. But, you know, you are seeing Ten Hag perhaps breathing new life into Manchester United's play. You know that Pep makes players better. And, and you'd say on the evidence so far, Eddie Howe has that as well. You look at Almiron, you know, he's scoring goals and playing in the way that, you know, Eddie Howe's been very gracious towards him and said it's all about confidence. Well, I think there's a lot of work gone into that, that as well to get that confidence and make that player's player better. And you look across the board, he's doing that. So there are similarities there, but I think it's a, a slowly, slowly rather than the razzmatazz that Manchester City had. I think Manchester City said we need to win a title within five years. I don't know if that's been a similar plan at Newcastle. You know, they won in 2012, didn't they, I think? Having come in at 2008, I think that's right. Um, I, I, you know, I, I can't see a situation that may be wrong and you can play this in, in three or four years' time. I can't see Newcastle win the title quite as quickly and maybe they've realised that it's going to be a lot of investments over a prolonged time to get to the levels of Newcastle, uh, sorry, of Liverpool and Manchester City. I have to ask you about Ipswich before I let you go. Um, obviously, Kieran McKenna, a Manchester United connection in the dugout. Um, what have you made of Ipswich so far this season and what does the club mean to you as a whole? I, I, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's like a curse, really. I mean, I, I grew up and um, we were the best club in Europe at that stage. You know, um, I can remember in 1981 going to a UEFA Cup final second leg or first leg, sorry, at Portman Road. My, my father was lucky enough to go to the second leg. You know, winning the UEFA Cup and having a a one to eleven that most people can still name now, you know the likes of I'll, I'll do it. I, I Paul Cooper, George Burley, Terry Butcher, Russell Osman, Mick Mills, 
John Rourke, Franz Tyson, Arnold Muren, Kevin O'Callaghan, uh, Paul Mariner, Alan Brazil, and Eric Gates. Kevin O'Callaghan was the sub, sorry, but that's, that's the, and most people can name most of those. That shows you how good Ipswich were. You know, so we grew up being used to that being the case. You know, 1981, second to Aston Villa, yet beating them three times in the season. Uh, going out in the semi-final against uh, Manchester City, I went to Villa Park, that was my first away trip, and Paul Power scoring against us, and I was in tears. You know, so they, they are wonderful. And, and, and the, the, the real sadness about watching these games, and I feel a bit guilty about it, watching Manchester City and Manchester United and these wonderful games of football, is when the ball hits in the back of the net, you're, you're pleased for them. But it's not like it would, you know, for example, when, Man when Ipswich scored four against Charlton at the weekend and, and then got back to 4-4, having played nine minutes of extra time. Um, you know, those, you know, when the ball hits the back of the net, it's your team. It doesn't matter who they're playing against. That's the curse. That's the cross that you have to bear. And I think right now, um, I talked about strategies and plans. I think for the first time in a long time, Ipswich Town have got a plan and they've got a coach with a strategy who's, who's really good. I think, you know, um, I, I, I won't say that he was the hand that rocked the cradle when uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was there, but he was a real integral part of the coaching of Manchester United. And I think we're very lucky to have him. Um, and I think, you know, at the moment we have the resource in terms of uh, money behind us to have a good squad of players. Um, we have American investment, but I think you know, with that comes you know, almost a ticking clock that they want championship football and they want Premier League football around the corner. Otherwise, you know, they start not paying the bills and they start going away and going elsewhere. So right now, a bit like Manchester United fans, Ipswich fans are happy. And you look at the crowds, I think they're getting 28,000, 27,000 at Portman Road. Um, and so it, it's nice being an Ipswich fan. Um, and of course, Ed Sheeran's on the front of our shirt. So people around the world don't know us for our football, but they know us for our famous fans. So there are things to be brighter and positive about. Last question I've got for you, obviously. Worked at MUTV, worked at Sky for many years, now working um, as a freelancer and, and as you say, doing university lecturing. Um, how much are you enjoying what you're doing now? And can you just give us a bit of the variety of, of, of what your life involves now? Yeah, I, I think it, yeah, it's difficult. You know, I, I, I've got to say, you know, I'll be honest with you, I, I miss being the person telling people what's going on at Manchester United and Manchester City. I think I'd be lying if I said I didn't. That's fun. That's exciting. It's all the things I talked about, the theatre and the performance and being the person that, that's giving the news. As a journalist, you want to be the person not only giving the news, but giving the biggest news that, that not changes people's lives. I mean, blimey, I'm making it sound too big. But, you know, that people want to talk about. You want to give stuff that people want to talk about and discuss. And so you, you do miss that. But equally, on the other side of that, you know, I, I want to be part of a kind of environment where I'm, I'm helping people into the industry when I'm telling the things that, that I know because I've done them or, or, or the way to do things. And so, so that excites me. Uh, and, and I like just having, as I said, I think early on, I, I like having an audience and a crowd there who can tell you very quickly whether you're good, bad or indifferent. You know, and, and I like, you know, what it essentially comes down to, I think, is, is getting people to tell their stories. You know, and, and that's what I think I'll always be. Uh, dedicated to doing so what, what I enjoy more than anything is sat down with a microphone whether it's a podcast or whether it's um, you know sat around the table or whether there's an audience there getting people to talk about themselves and making them comfortable enough to say things hopefully that they won't have said before or, or, or to somebody else you know I think that's that that's that's what as journalists what we probably yearn to do uh, and I think what I've discovered over the, the last year is probably there are different ways and means of doing that that aren't quite as showbiz as a sky or, or flash or high profile, but have moments where you that are as rewarding. No, it's fascinating insight. And as I say, thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to do this. I really appreciate your time. Not at all, Cam. It's been wonderful. I'm just sorry that we haven't done it before, that you know, schedules and being busy have, have meant that we haven't done it. But I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much for getting me to tell you things that I've not told other people. So you have the skill. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song